Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. So this morning in our text, we are dealing with uh, the weight of emotion, okay? And I've told you before, but I'm not a super emotional kind of guy. Um, and so talking about emotion and all that is um, sometimes not the, not the thing that I would prefer. And so maybe you're right there with me. You're going, I'm not a real emotional guy either. But, uh, but I, I hope that in this text, we're gonna see Jesus as he's dealing with some really difficult things. And in fact, some people say that this is the most amount of anguish or pain or anxiety that we see in all of the Bible is what we're gonna study this morning. And so we're dealing with that. Uh, we're gonna see Jesus feeling extremely alone. And I'm hoping that, that what you see is a Jesus who is fully human, just like we are, dealing with pain, emotion, loneliness, anxiety, and I hope if you find yourself there this morning in, in that space of going, yeah, I do feel alone, I feel abandoned, I feel anxious about life, I hope that you see this morning a Jesus who is right there with you. He's experienced it as well. He identifies with you, and I think that's healing and that's helpful for us. And also we know that scripture says that he never leaves us or abandons us, right? And, and so I hope that you're gonna be ministered to in that way. But also, this text deals with people falling asleep, right? Um, and so I just wanna know, if you're married, would you just, if your spouse has a problem with falling asleep on the couch in the living room at night, would you just raise your hand if it's your spouse? Go ahead, and you can tell on them, that's fine. They're fine with it. Yeah, I'm raising, my wife does this as well. She falls asleep on the couch most evenings as we're watching TV, and for whatever reason, it drives me crazy. I'm like, like the, the bed is right in there. Just get up and go in there. And I'm always like, are you sleeping? And she's always, she always says, no, I wasn't sleeping. I was like, you were sleeping. Um, I do it too. I'll fall asleep and I'll, I do the same thing. I deny it. And she's like, well, you were snoring. I was like, yeah, well, okay. So I guess what I'm saying is this is a bad day to fall asleep in church, right? So don't fall asleep with this text. And also you just need to know when you do that, I see you, right? You're not very far away from me. So don't, don't fall asleep today. Um, the truth is chapter 14 of Mark is heavy. Like it is, it's hard to read. Like if you, if you could separate yourself from just the uh, common, the commonality of it and the fact that you know these stories, if you could separate yourself from that and just read it as a human being and identify with the things that are going on here, it's a difficult read. Chapter 14 starts by saying that people were plotting to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him. And then uh, some different things happen. Jesus goes and has uh, the Passover meal. He celebrates a probably the most famous of all the Jewish meals and celebrations. He, he celebrates that meal with his disciples, his closest friends. But at that meal, he tells them that one of the 12 who has been with them every single day for the last three years, gone everywhere, seen everything, is going to betray him. It's gonna sell him out for, for just a few pieces of silver. Then Jesus reveals that that. Peter is going to deny Jesus three times, and Peter's like Jesus' best friend. 
Verse 19 of, of chapter 14 says that they began to be distressed. That word we're gonna see in our text this morning as well. So it's just the theme of this chapter, right? So Jesus is gonna be sold out. He's gonna be abandoned by all of his closest friends and then his best friend is gonna deny him three times. And then on top of that, he's gonna go and he's gonna suffer and he's gonna be killed and tortured on a cross in just a matter of hours from here. And the thing about this text is Jesus knew it was all coming. He understood. And what we're gonna see is him wrestling with the weight of it, right? So after dinner, after he had the Passover meal where he, where he says, you're gonna sell me out, you're gonna deny me three times, they go to one of their favorite places to hang out, which is this area called the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll see it in our text. And, um, and it's there where Jesus goes with his friends one last time. All right, so that's the, that's the context of what we're looking at. Before we read our text, I would, I would love for us to pray and just ask the Lord to speak to us in this time. And so I, I wanna pray for all of us and, and you just take this time, just simply ask God, God, would you speak to me in this moment? Let's all pray. God, I ask that, um, that you would just help us now uh, to see what it is in your word that you need us to see this morning. You've brought us here for a reason this morning to worship you and to hear from you. And so God, I pray that you would remove me from the equation altogether and that we would hear directly from you through your word and your spirit. Would you speak to us and would you help us to respond? We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Mark chapter 14, pick up in verse 32 with me. Mark 14, verse 32 says this. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it, be, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and he found them sleeping because they couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the time has come. See, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So in this, in this passage, Jesus and his, and his disciples, they go to Gethsemane. Again, it's one of their favorite hangouts. They go there often. And he tells his disciples to come and sit and pray. And then he takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John, and, and they go a little bit further into the garden. And he just begins to pour out his heart to them. He says, I'm deeply distressed. So stay here, stay awake and pray. And Jesus leaves Peter, James, and John and goes a little bit further into the garden says that he fell to the ground under the massive weight of the moment and he prays this. This is, his, this is his prayer, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup 
away from me. That's important. We'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now, this is a, a massively important passage, and, and I know that you've heard it, but I want, I want to encourage you to try and hear it and read it with me this morning through fresh eyes. Like, see if you can understand the weight of what's happening. I think we see two things that help us understand this passage that I want to show you this morning. We see in Jesus, we, his, we see Jesus' concern, and we see Jesus' commitment. We see Jesus' concern and his commitment. So first, let's look at his concern. Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, I am deeply distressed and troubled to the point of death. Now, he's not saying I'm literally about to have a heart attack or anything like that. It's, it would be like how, how we would say I'm starving to death, right? Just meaning Jesus is saying I am, I am distressed, I am grieved to the max. Like I can't, I can't be any more troubled than what I am right now. And we see it in how Jesus, it says he went a little further and he fell to the ground. One commentator says nothing in all the Bible compares to Jesus's agony and anguish in Gethsemane. And so maybe you're asking, what's he so upset about? Like, why is Jesus so upset? Why is, he, why is he feeling so distressed and troubled to the point of death? Essentially, it's this, and we're gonna dig further into this, but Jesus is feeling the gravity and the weight of what's about to happen to him. He knew everything that was coming. He knew why he came to this earth. In fact, I think the thesis verse for the book of Mark is Mark 10, 45, where, where Jesus says, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew exactly why he was there. He knew his purpose was to give his own life for the ransom of, of sinners. In fact, three times before this passage, he explicitly tells the disciples, hey, we're going to Jerusalem and they're gonna kill me, right? So Jesus understood, he, he knew. And what you see in this passage is just the, the welling up of deep emotions coming out of Jesus. See, I think we need to read this with fresh eyes because it's easy for us just to gloss over stuff like this in the Bible, isn't it? Like we become numb to these kind of stories that we've heard a thousand times. Like somehow the cross and the fact that Jesus was tortured and killed on our behalf has just become routine. And it should never be the case. Right? Jesus here is feeling this unimaginable weight. He's feeling the gravity of what's about to happen to him, and it says that it brought him down to his knees, and even further than that, down onto his face. He fell onto his face because he's crushed by the weight of what's happening. In fact, Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, that word Gethsemane means olive press. It's the, it's the picture of how they press and crush olives and the oil comes out, right? Olive oil, which is fitting for what's, what's taking place here in this passage. In this garden where Jesus went often, he's being pressed down and crushed under the weight of the world and the events that would take place the very next day. The weight and the sorrow of it, the anxiety of it is real and it's crushing, in Luke's uh, account of this same story, Luke was a doctor. I like to call him Dr. Luke. And I mean like a medical doctor, not just like a study smart things kind of a doctor. He's, he's a real doctor, right? And Dr. Luke tells us that in this moment, Jesus is sweating blood. 
He says this, Luke 22, 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's interesting that a doctor would tell us that, right? So I'm not a doctor. And uh, so I did what you do whenever you need to find out medical stuff. I went online to WebMD, right? And I, I wanted to know what does this mean for somebody to sweat blood? And here's what I found. It's actually a confirmed rare medical condition called hematidrosis, where basically your body uh, will, will emit sweat and blood together. It says this on WebMD, that it's usually caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse, which is what Jesus is facing. So it's interesting. You get it, like in the first century, they don't know medical things, right? I know Do Dr. Luke, he's a doctor, but he doesn't know anything about hematidrosis, right? He doesn't know what that is. It's a rare condition that we've discovered later. So the fact that Dr. Luke includes it is not like he's trying to slip in some detail and trick us. To me, that's just confirmation of what's actually taking place. Does that make sense? And so Dr. Luke includes that. And what's interesting about this, this thing that happens whenever you sweat blood and, and, and whatnot is, is WebMD says that it's usually triggered by your fight or flight uh, trigger that you have. And so what you see here is that's what Jesus is wrestling with. He's wrestling with, do I stay or do I run? Do I stay and fight this thing that I've come to this earth to fight or do I just bail altogether? You can even see that in his prayer that he prays. So the point is this, Jesus knew what was coming. And that's why we see this battle with emotion and humanity here. And his response to everything that's going on is to pray, which I think is, is like a sub point for us. Whenever you're facing things that are extremely lonely or anxious or, or causing you deep emotions, man, the right response is what Jesus does and it's to go to the Father and pray. He says in verse 36, this is his prayer. It says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. And he falls on his face. It's not a common way for Jewish men to pray. Like we just saw earlier in the book of Mark that Jewish men usually stand with their face up to pray. And here Jesus falls down on his face to pray and he says this, Abba, Father, which is interesting that Mark would include the Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, but it holds a little bit deeper meaning than, than, than maybe the word father does. In Aramaic, it means more like what we would say dad, right? Here's how I'd explain that to you. There's a difference between fa a father and a dad, isn't there? Like if you, if you maybe have never known who your, who your father is and, and you do some genetic stuff or whatever, and you meet your biological father. You're gonna tell people, yes, I met my father, but you're not gonna say I met my dad, are you? Because there's a difference. And so here, Mark is saying, he called him dad, father. That's not to say every time that Jesus calls God father that there's some kind of disconnect, but the, the, the emphasis that Mark wants you to see here is there's this deep relationship that is shared between Jesus and the father, right? It's a deep relationship. And just a fun fact for you, um, later, whenever the church is born and Christians come onto the scene, Christians start referring to God as Abba, Father. 
right? Because of what Jesus does here in this garden, the book of Romans says that now we as children cry out, Abba, Father, because of, because of what he's done. So he is deeply distressed. He has this close, intimate relationship with, with God the Father, and he, and he brings his concern to him. What's his concern? His concern is the cup. It's, it's the cup. So he's, it, the physical pain that he's gonna endure the next day is not what's, what, what he's dreading, although it's gonna be severe. It's gonna be horrible. What he is dreading in this moment is what's in the cup. And so here, you need to understand what the cup is. You know, Jesus is saying, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. That might be lost on us. So in Mark 10, Jesus is talking to uh, James and John. Remember, they come up and they say, hey, whenever you go into your kingdom, we wanna be sitting on your right and on your left, remember? And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And then Jesus says, indeed, you will drink the cup, right? So in that instance, Jesus is talking about the cup representing suffering, that James and John are going to suffer as a follower of his. But all throughout the Old Testament, the cup represents more than just suffering. It represents suffering the wrath of God. All right, it's suffering the wrath of God. I'm gonna throw some scripture at, him, at you, not expecting you to remember this. Just want you to see that it's in there. Psalm 11, verse six, Isaiah 51, verse 17, and verse 22, Lamentations 4, verse 21, Ezekiel 23, verses 32 through 34. We see throughout the Old Testament that the cup represents suffering the wrath of God. And so Jesus knows over the next 18 hours, he's going to drink the full cup of God's wrath towards sin. He's gonna take it. The whole thing, all of God's wrath, he's gonna drink it in. Because I tell you every week, right, that sin demands a payment. Sin is a, serious, is a serious deal. God can't be God and be cool with your sin, right? He can't look on unrighteousness and still stay righteous. So, so your sin and my sin demands a payment. And the sin of every person Scripture is going to tell us, was placed on Jesus on the cross. So he took on the weight of all of our sin on himself. And in that moment, the full wrath of God was placed on Jesus. He actually became sin. He became the, the object of God's wrath towards sin on the cross. He became, it's a word, propitiation, right? That's what Jesus became on the cross. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him, talking of, of Jesus, for the iniquity of us. Isaiah 53, 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. That's what Jesus is walking into. He's, he's gonna drink this full cup of God's wrath on our behalf and, and, and it says that the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see in this olive press type of situation, Jesus is being crushed. The process is beginning where he is being crushed for you and for me. This is a big theological idea, big, big doctrinal word uh, called penal substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big word. Uh, but we use big words all the time. We're not afraid of big words, right? Mayonnaise is a big word. Can't, can't even spell it. But penal substitutionary atonement. Basically, if you break those words down, it, it, penal means penalty. Substitutionary, obviously, is the substitute. And then atonement means making things right. So here's what that means. A substitute took the penalty to bring atonement, to bring righteousness for us. 
So Jesus stood in your place. He took the penalty of your sin and he gives you righteousness. That's, that's what's happening here. That's what Jesus is walking into. First Peter chapter two, verse 24. He, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been made healed. Do you see it? There's a substitution thing that's happening there. Jesus took the penalty you should have taken. He substituted in for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us. He became sin for you and for me so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin is placed on Jesus on the cross. His righteousness is placed on us. Right? This is called imputed righteousness. We're just learning all kinds of theological words right now, and that was on, a, on accident to throw that one out there. But that's what's happening. Mark 14, 36, the prayer of Jesus. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Notice, even in the middle of the horrible pain and the weight of the cup that Jesus was facing, he still trusts the Father completely. Trust him completely. And so Jesus prays this prayer. We're told he prays it three times. And then he gets up. He wipes the tears and the snot and the blood off of his face. And he gets up and he goes and he finds his friends sleeping. During the most agonizing moment of his life, his closest friends don't have his back. And I know that you've probably experienced that as well, right? Abandonment, loneliness, the time in your life when you needed a friend the most and just no one was there. That's what Jesus is facing. And I think on a human level, that's the hardest part of all of this. Sure, drinking the cup of God's wrath is by far the hardest part, for sure. But on a human level, which we see Jesus struggling with the human emotion of all this, the hardest part is just being alone. And, and that's the theme of chapter 14. If you walk through it over and over again, you're gonna see Jesus just being left all alone, people denying him, people leaving him, people, people selling him out for a few pieces of silver. And so remember, in this moment, yes, Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. So have you ever felt alone? Have you felt that? Have you felt abandoned? If you have, know that Jesus has felt it too and he's with you. But when you're in pain, you want the comfort of a close friend, of a loved one, they're with you. And that's why Jesus brought his friends to the garden in the first place. He needed a friend. And in his deepest hour of pain and need, his closest friends just weren't with him. Again, one of his friends is about to betray him. The rest are about to run away as soon as the mob comes in. But maybe the worst part of all of it, and Jesus understood that this was gonna happen, is that on the cross, even the father is gonna have to turn his back to him. Mark 15, 34, where Jesus famously cries out on the cross, God, why have you abandoned me? just completely alone. So don't miss this. Jesus knew and understood all of this in the garden. 
He understood everything that was coming, which I think should create in you, Christian, it should create just a sense of worship in your soul for him. Like the things that he went through on your behalf should cause you to just love him and worship him all the more. But his concern for his sleeping friends and every single one of us was stronger than his concern for himself in this moment. And so we see his concern and we also see his commitment. In this story, we see his commitment. And, I, and, and so the question I think should be asked and, and ask yourself, like, was Jesus being weak in this moment? Was Jesus being weak? Like others have faced death and they've done it valiantly. Like there's stories of people just standing in the face of death and, and just being brave and not cowering down. Like here's, I read one story this week, like this guy named St. Lawrence. He was one of seven deacons in Rome. In 258 AD, he was sentenced to be burned alive on a grill, like a barbecue grill. They made a grill, put charcoal underneath it and put Lawrence on this grill. And the story is famous. It goes on to say that he looked over at his executioners and said, I'm well done on this side. Turn me over. Right? And just story after story of Christian martyrs who are like facing death and they're singing songs or they're even joking with the executioners. So we have stories of people facing death that way. And the question is like, was Jesus being kind of a coward here? Was he being weak? Was he afraid? Like, of course, of course not. Of course he wasn't being weak. Let me show you how I know. First, you see it in the intentionality in the garden. Like Jesus went to the garden on purpose. He went to the garden so that he would be found. He, he knew that Judas would know where to find him there. It's in John chapter 18, if you want to look at it. But John chapter 18, verse 1 says, after Jesus had said these things, all right, so this is John's account of Mark uh, 14 that we're reading this morning. It says, after Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, that is Gethsemane, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane to be found, not to hide. And that's important. You need to know that. He's not cowering away from all this. He went there so that Judas would know where to find him. If he wanted to hide, he could have gone anywhere else than their typical hangout. But he went to the garden. So we see that he's not cowering back. He's not afraid. He's not weak because he intentionally went to the garden. He's committed to the mission, but also we see it in that he moves toward the mob. Look at verse 42. Jesus tells him this, get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, you could read that and think, maybe he's saying like, quick, we gotta get out of here. We gotta, we gotta run. And, and listen, Jesus could have ran away in this moment. Absolutely. All he had to do is just go to Bethany, go to Martha's house, go, go anywhere else. He could have done that. And if he would have, there'd be no salvation for any of us. But he's committed to the mission. And so that's not what he did. Instead, this is how that's supposed to be read. Whenever he says in verse 42, it's essentially he's saying, it's time. Let's go meet them. Let's go meet them. This is a warrior walking into battle. 
Like if you read John's account, whenever Jesus walks up to them and they, they say, we're looking for Jesus, he says, I am he, they all fall to the ground. Jesus isn't afraid of anybody in this moment. He's not cowering down. He's not weak. This is a triumphant moment over the fear and the anxiety and the pain and the sorrow that he's facing. How do I know? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse two says it this way, that we, we keep our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He's not cowering away from it. He endured the cross with joy. He despises the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God, that verse goes on to say. So he did all this because he was committed to the mission. Jesus' concern for others and his commitment to the mission caused him to pick himself up and walk toward the mob. And he went out to drink the full cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of salvation. That's the beautiful thing that's happening here. Psalm chapter 116, verse 13. I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So in that instance, the cup is used in a different way. It's not talking about the wrath of God. It's talking about the salvation of God that comes from calling on the name of the Lord. And that's my invitation to you this morning. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you've never called out to him, then why not today? He's done everything necessary. He got up out of this garden. He walked and met the mob. And then he walked to a cross where they crucified him. And then he walked out of a grave offering you life. And so this morning, you can trust in him. Make him your savior this morning and he will save you. Psalm 116 verse 13 can be yours. I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. So that's the, that's the weight. That's, that's what's happening there in the garden where Jesus is being crushed in the olive press for you and for me. And I think it does. I think it, it creates a sense of worship in your soul if you're a follower of his. If you're not a follower of his, I hope it's, it's, a, it's a drawing in of saying, I've got to follow that Jesus who loves me that much. But on a more practical level, on a more day-to-day -day type of level, what is this passage saying to us? Well, there's a very clear contrast that's happening here between Jesus and us. See, there's a clear contrast happening in this passage of the concern and the commitment of Jesus and the lack thereof of the disciples. They didn't have any concern. They didn't have any commitment to the things of God. Jesus calls them into this battle that he's in and it's this deep, weighty moment in his life and they're just asleep. They're sleeping. And these poor guys, I know that they catch a, they get a bad rap all the time and we make fun of them because they say goofy things and they do goofy things all the time. And here, Jesus needs them, and they just fall asleep three times. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says, Simon, which is Peter, what are you doing? And they couldn't even defend themselves, verse 40 says. So the picture in this story is very clear. The contrast is clear. The disciples fail, and Jesus doesn't. And so I want you to notice Jesus' response to his, his friends sleeping. He doesn't get angry and yell. 
He doesn't tell them just to get lost. He doesn't say you're no longer my friends or you're bad friends or anything like that. He tells them in verse 38, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, I think it's interesting that Jesus specifically speaks to Peter in this passage. There were other people around, but he speaks to Peter. He says, Simon, which is Peter, what are you, what are you doing? Here's why I think he does that. Just before this passage, Jesus has just told Peter that, that Peter's gonna deny him three times. And Peter says, there's no way. I'll never deny you. And then Jesus says, come on, we're gonna go to the garden, we're gonna pray. Peter, come with me. Hey, I'm deeply distressed. I'm troubled to the point of death. I need you to stay awake and pray with me. I need you. And three times, Peter sleeps. Then the mob comes, Jesus walks out to them. Peter tries to have a moment of like some strength and he cuts a dude's ear off and that's a whole other story that happens. But in just a few hours, Peter's gonna deny Jesus three times. The best friend of Jesus denies even knowing him. Verse 72 of chapter 14 says that Peter broke down and wept. Like it's clear that the, the emotion is all throughout this, this chapter. And it, and it ends with Peter breaking down and weeping because he failed. And so do we. We fail all the time. Our flesh is weak to temptation. Our flesh is weak and we're just like these disciples. We have little to no concern, little to no commitment to the things of Jesus and we just end up snoozing through life. We're kicked back, we're lulled to sleep, we're just going through the motions. And Jesus says the remedy to that, to our flesh being weak, is to pray. That's what he tells them. And so I have a challenge for us this morning. Here's my challenge. Verse 37 says this. Then, then he, Jesus, came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Now, I know that Jesus doesn't mean a literal hour, right? He doesn't mean a literal, literal hour, but I do. I wanna challenge you this week to find an hour, one hour, and pray. And that may look different for each of you. Maybe you gotta start small. You gotta start with 10 minutes this afternoon or tomorrow morning, but by the end of the week, man, work up. Find an hour to be alone with the Lord because Jesus is saying that our, although our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak and we fall into temptation all the time. And so Christian, that's my challenge for you. And maybe if we'll do that, we'll look more and more like friends of Christ who model this concern for others and this commitment to the mission that Jesus modeled in the garden for us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.